Hello, and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose, with purpose, on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine, and today we are here with Ken Keyes. How you doing, Ken? I'm doing awesome. Thank you. Super. How's J.W. doing today? Oh, hey, thanks for asking. I'm doing uh, pretty wonderful, and you're up in Vancouver, I hear? I'm in Vancouver, so we're on the West Coast together and just uh, enjoy that beautiful uh, Pacific Ocean together. Yeah, well, it's great for us uh, back east. It's a little, they're going through uh, Hurricane, or what was Hurricane Sandy, so it's a little rough for them. Uh, well, that's why we live here. <laughs> yeah, we'd rather, do you get earthquakes up in Vancouver? Ah, we just had one, so we're trying to kind of keep it off to the ocean side so that it doesn't come inland, but it can occur. Wonderful. So why are we talking to Ken Keyes today? Well, Ken Keyes, uh, he's an MBA and is considered the foremost global authority uh, on assessment strategies and uh, processes that increase and multiply your success rate. Uh, He's also a co-creator of CRG's proprietary development models and has written over 3 million words of content and 40 business training programs and 400-plus articles. That number is probably even bigger now. Uh, Ken's an expert on assisting individuals, families, teams, and organizations to realize their full potential and live on purpose. And uh, I thought it was perfect to bring you on, Ken, uh, since we are On Purpose Magazine. And so I really love what you do. Thank well, that's a perfect fit in that, in that, in that regard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me just start out. I, I want The first question that comes to mind is, and I, and I know what they are, but, I, you know, many, many people may not know, um, what are assessment strategies? Well, everywhere in life we, we assess everything. So say, people say, hey, how hot is it outside? So somebody gives a temperature or, you know, how much is in your bank account? So you know how much is the money and... Uh, you go to the doctor and what's your blood pressure? So what we do is that we take that same methodology of assessment for life, which sort of benchmarks a condition, and we bring that internally to people's professional and personal development. And so when we think about assessment strategies, well, how, how do I feel from a wellness point of view? So we document that. Or if somebody is a leader and so, well, how do I benchmark my leadership skills just like a doctor might do my blood pressure? And then if it's around personal style or personality or self-worth or values. So we have a myriad of different approaches, but it's really helping the people get clear about what is important in my life, what's the condition of my life, and then really allowing people a roadmap about what you're going to do with that information. So if your blood pressure is too high, then you have certain choices. So the yeah, same thing with us, that's are, the same way. How do you know the, where, where to start from or where to go, right? Uh, pardon me? And I said, if you don't know where you are, how do you know where to start from or where to go? Well, absolutely. And a lot of times, you know, if we think about the research around purpose, and, you know, that's why we connected JWs, that our, my purpose is help other people to live theirs. And the latest research in the developed world is that less than 10% or maybe less than 20% are just completely on purpose and connected. Well, that's a sad state of affairs because obviously people are not being intentional with their life. They're not being awake or aware about their direction. And so the saddest state of affairs 
is to have individuals not living on purpose, to really be partly engaged or not engaged at all. And lots of the, lots of the research say that 50 to 80% of the workforce is disengaged from their role or responsibilities. Well, that's not a very good place to live, and you're certainly not going to be on purpose if you're doing that. Wow. Well, you know, um, Oprah talks and everybody talks about, you know, finding that passion. Is it possible that your purpose is not necessarily your passion? Well, for us, our, believing, our belief is, and I've, I've written two books, so My Source Experience Journal, which really helps people to do a pathway to get clear about their purpose, and then my other book, Why Aren't You More Like Me?, which helps that whole assessment side. But in our purpose work, here's our assumption, is that purpose and passions, that our, that our passions do connect to our purpose. And there was somebody that just came out with an article just a couple of weeks ago said we should not look at our passions as connected to our purpose. And I said, well, what are you talking about? Is that passions or purpose or interest, as we would which be another word, are things that compel or drive us where we don't actually have to do the work. Motivation is actually a myth. And so if I have to motivate myself day to day to do something, then we're going to suggest that you are that procrastination actually has a positive side to it, that you're doing the wrong thing, you're doing the right thing in the wrong environment, or you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong environment. And so that we need to be aware of what these things are, JW, so that uh, I can be connected to it. So the other side is is that you could be good at something, skilled, trained, excellent capabilities within a certain context, but not have passion over it. So that, a lot of cases, is true where, you know, I was trained for this job and very good at this job, but I really don't like this job or I don't like these responsibilities. So that tends to be true for a lot of people, more so than the other one where, you know, do I love my passions? Are my passions and purpose connected? In our research and our work, we'd say yes. Okay. So let me ask you this: uh, When you break down a, a person, there's so many things that you could probably you could name that's wrong with a per, person. I mean, if you're looking for the negative, you could say, "Well, that person doesn't know how to, he's not good at sports, or he's not good at this, he's not good at that, but he's brilliant at this." And I would say that there's 10% of us that have, a, you know, we're brilliant at something. We all are, and it's probably better to go look for the brilliance in somebody and in ourselves than than, than to go look for the the things we can't do. But what if you're brilliant at something, but that's not what you feel is your purpose? Or is, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, that can happen where, well, example is, you know, I've been in the professional development field. This is my 24th year. So started in, uh, you know, the late 80s doing this. So I've been here for a while. But my past life, I actually had a dairy farm. I grew up in the dairy farm. I was third generation, firstborn male, Eastern European descent. So do you wow. think, J.W., there was a little bit of pressure for me to stay a little bit. on the dairy farm? Just, <laughs> just a bit. So when I left, you know, certain words were used, trader, etc. I'm very good at that. And I do enjoy it to a certain extent. But one morning I got up. It's 5.30 in the morning. Sun was coming up. I looked out the window and I asked myself this question. If I was doing this 20 years from now, would that be okay? And I said, absolutely not. So then what am I waiting for to make that decision? There is no benefit in staying in a place that, yes, I'm good at it, and it's okay, but it's not a passion or love for me. And so is there an incongruence as far as purpose? 
Well, I think, you know, some people from a spiritual perspective, people need to say, okay, what's my assignment? But, you know, that's that's a personal choice. That's sort of your belief system. But I know for a fact for me that my purpose in some way or another is helping other people to live their purpose. Now, it could be me speaking. It could be me writing a book, or it could be an assessment we put together. It could be coaching somebody. It could be in the context of different organizations. So how that plays out can you be unique to an individual and where you apply that purpose, where it's being uh, sourced and, and lived out. But the essence of what that passion and that purpose is, there seems to be a thread, something that's there for you for most of your life. So it could be that I might even change a little bit of my topics, JW, where I move into a different level of expertise or a different expertise in terms of what I want to teach. Mm-hmm. But teaching and equipping other people is the core of who I am. And when that occurs, it's just like somebody said, well, you just finished three days doing your three-day certification where we certify other professionals on the use of our tools. I said, you must be tired. I said, not at all. And we go from 8.30 in the morning till 10 at night, three days in a row to conduct that. But I'm not weary at the end of it. Yes, I want to kind of decompress. But I'm not tired. I'm actually engaged by it. I'm also excited by it, but also energized by it. Well, you know, it's funny because before we got on this call, we were talking about our eclectic, my eclectic background in uh, and resume. Yes. And I, I can see that you have one also moving from <laughs> farms to self-development. Uh, well, how I, I transitioned to that, I actually, when I left the farm, I went into a couple of other roles and responsibilities in the agricultural field. And mm-hmm. one was as a nutritionist, and then the other one was um, as an, Adarian, an inspector. But the nutritionist also had sales. So then I moved out of that into sales training and then went from sales training and marketing training into the development and connecting with CRG, which is the you know, company that I own now that publishes assessments. And we you know business globally in 11, soon to be maybe 13 languages. Uh, and just serve people in that context. Some of it's sales training, some not. Uh, but like you said, uh, there's this eclectic side. But one other story, I think, just to encourage other listeners, sure. is that sometimes we have barriers and we have backgrounds. As you were sharing a personal thing that was a background where people sometimes use that as an excuse. When I was in grade nine, my English teacher said I would not amount to anything because reading and writing was very difficult for me. And it was when I was doing my master's degree, which I – by the way, got an honors level grades, was discovered that I'm dyslexic. So here I am all these years struggling. And, of course, this is before, and I know we're dating ourselves, JW, this is before computers were used in the classroom. But there was this little thing that was invented that helped me to become a writer. And that was a thing called Word with a little red line underneath it. And said, oh, by the way, that word is misspelled. (laughs) <laughs> and so, and now I still have my, my, I get my words mixed around and sometimes I'm not as articulate in the structuring of a sentence as I'd like to be, but I've now written three and a half million words of content over that 24 years period of time. And I said, okay, so what? I, I agree with Kiyosaki in this. He said, you know what? There's some people who are great writers, but they're not best-selling authors. Right. And so it doesn't matter that I'm dyslexic. It doesn't matter. I, I don't use that as an excuse. But I'd sure, I don't even remember the English teacher's name anymore, but I'd sure like to kind of show her my couple of books that I've published and the feedback people have for it. And I just encourage the listeners of this show is that don't use those excuses. Sometimes 
we hinder our passion. So oh, I could never be a writer, or I could never really be a presenter because I stutter, or something like that. Well, people right. overcome these barriers every day because the purpose and the passion overrides it. And uh, I admit that my last book, Why Aren't You More Like Me, was it was work. It was effort for me to write. It took a year to write it. So there's no, there's not a single word in this book that's been ghostwritten. I mean, every word was gone through myself because it's a, um, a book on research around personalities and personal styles and the implications that it has in our every part of our life. I, I'm not saying it was easy, but my passion for helping to change people's lives and give them information that's going to equip them to win overrode some of these other things that we have in our life. Wow, that's that's really. That's really great, and I think a lot of us uh, probably, uh, including it sounds like yourself a little bit, instead of using these things as uh, as things to hold us back in our life, when somebody came to me and said I couldn't do something, I think that was the motivation. I used it as the motivation to to show them that I could, and so mm-hmm. if you can use those things as opposed to uh, labeling yourself, use them to motivate you to <laughs> to show people that hey. That's, that's bull. I think that uh, will serve you well. I want to get back to the book here. I have one more question uh, before we jump to that, and that is because we talked about the eclectic paths we both had to get to where we are, and many people, I think, do, especially nowadays. Jobs aren't 40 years long anymore. They're, you know, five years and two years. No, uh, yeah, for sure. We can change, we can change our, the direction of our career many times in our lives now. Um, is what you do when you uh, help people find their purpose Will that help them not maybe go through so many changes in their life and uh, and be as eclectic? Though I like that part of what I do, you know, who I've been and what has happened to me. It's not always been the easiest road. I would have loved to found out some of this stuff a lot sooner. Well, sometimes our journey helps equip us for the next stage of what we're doing. But certainly what we want to do is not be get stuck in roles and responsibilities that really are draining us. And our work is really to help people get clearer, faster, sooner, and giving them assessments that help them get clear about who they are. And it's interesting, our assessments actually don't create the results. And that's kind of an odd statement. So what do you mean by that? What we do is it documents what's already true for the person, but we give them a formal way to be able to capture it. So when when you go to the doctor and get your cholesterol test, the cholesterol didn't go up or down because you tested it. It just documented what was already true for you. And so what we do is we help people to give a framework. And then even in the purpose work, we help people, uh, we give them a series of questions in my source book, which helps them to identify what, excuse me, what are some of these passions and possibilities. And sometimes we have to try certain things out, and that's okay. We shouldn't give ourselves um, or beat ourselves up for it. But if I can get connected to my purpose and passion sooner, then my level of satisfaction, my level, the ability to contribute, it goes higher. It's, you know, getting connected to my purpose and passion is not a self-centered activity. It's a self-honoring activity for the purposes of the highest level of contribution. And so we just encourage people that if they're not satisfied with what they're doing or if they're in an area that's just not serving them, a lot of times people today, especially sort of economically, we live in fear, and you have a job because you have a job, and it's not really the one that you want to have. And I'm not suggesting you should quit, 
But what we should do is be looking at what's going to serve us, again, not from a self-centered, where we have been given and created with gifts, talents, and abilities, how can I best serve others? And many are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers, where he was measuring success. But one of the things he cited in there was a research study out of the University of Florida, and it's a chapter in my book, Why Aren't You More Like Me?, talking that mastery comes out of doing something for 10,000 hours. And it was really by accident they discovered it in that it didn't matter what profession, if I was accounting, a doctor, a speaker, a lawyer, a stockbroker, is that it was really around 10,000 hours that mastery was starting to be experienced. Mm-hmm. So the, the challenge we have, JW, is that if mastery takes 10,000 hours, and I remember when I got in this industry, and I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And, I, and that's when, you know, Anthony Robbins was really coming into the, the field at that time as well. I said, you know, it's not going to take me uh, 10 or 15 years to be an overnight success. I can do this, like, in a couple of years. But guess what? It took me 10 years to even get good at what I was doing. And now it's 25 years, and I'm still learning, still improving, still doing all these different things. But mastery, 10,000 hours, that is 20 hours of doing your profession for 10 years. And so if you do the math on it, so it takes 10 years. So that what we encourage people is that if I do a bunch of short jobs or, or, or jobs that are, you know, two years, three years, four years, and there's no sort of central theme in the movement of this, it could be a different job, but the same career or the same calling, then I've done everything averaged and mastered nothing. Right. And when we ask people, when you get into mastery, somebody says, Ken, what are you going to do next? Well, I said, I don't have next. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I don't have a, a fallback at the moment. The fallback is what I'm doing. This is who I am. And so there's some, it might morph itself into different ways. But the same thing for the people listening to this. Can they get connected to that and start paying attention? Our life leaves clues, and are we paying attention to those clues and one of the people I interviewed, uh, JW, for our own radio program not that long ago was a ge- gentleman named Richard Nodell, who has been in the career development field for 40 years. But his best buddy is Dick Bowles. Well, Dick Bowles wrote What Colors Your Parachute. And so I was talking to Richard, and Richard is one of our associates using our tools and assessments in training career developers to help other people find their career. And I said, Richard, why are so many people so stuck and don't know what to do in their lives. And he said, Ken, quite simply, they're not willing, able, or nor have they done their own work. Wow. So if people are connected to their purpose, now some of us are born and we just know, I knew at 16 I was going to be doing this in some form or another, even though my eclectic path. But if I'm not willing to do the work, then how could I possibly get connected to what that purpose is? If I don't pay attention to these things, if I'm not doing the work, if I just kind of go with the flow and say, okay, everybody says that this is the next trend, so I'm going to be a computer programmer, or this is the next trend, I'm going to be a social media expert, but really not loving any of those. Well, forget it. And I asked Richard, what do I do when there's a shortage of jobs and you're coaching somebody to a career where there is a lack of opportunity? And he says, you know what, Ken? I only need one job. I need one job for that person. I don't worry about what anybody else is thinking, what they're doing. I just, he said, is there going to be one job for that person? I said, well, certainly there's going to be. Well, then why are you worried about it? <laughs> okay. So a lot of times we're going to push back. Okay, yes, there's trends, 
and the people weren't making uh, vinyl records for a while, but guess what? They're making them again. Uh, so if I wanted to be in the vinyl record business for the last 30 years, you might have been out of business. But I could go to CDs, I could go to DVDs, I could go to MP3s, I could do the streaming, whatever the case might be, and still be in the music or communication industry. So, I mean, you can tell, you know, as I start talking about this, this is just fun work to get people connected to it because it's there for them. I remember speaking in a conference, JW, and at the end of it, the person says, well, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I have a purpose. And I said, well, here's your purpose. Your purpose is to find out what your purpose is. Exactly. And, and that's your job is if you don't have one, if somebody listening to this is not clear about what their direction is, then your purpose is to find out what your purpose is. And I did that personally myself in the late 80s, early 90s. I did all this work and continue to do it and continue to try to refine, refine it. You know, this didn't sort of happen by accident to do all these different right. pieces is that uh, – People say, J.W., man, you're so successful. You have all these people you know. You know what? That didn't happen by accident for you. <laughs> you went out there and you engaged people and you connected with them and you did certain things. And so if we're not willing to do the work, then we're not going to get the results either. Well, you know, this probably sets you up for your next book, Ken, which is uh, I've already come up with the title for you called uh, Knowing is Not Enough. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, I might have to co- co-author it together. Well, there it's not. Go. I have to take action on those things. And you know what? We're all the same thing. I mean, even though you know, I certify just amazing people, I'm just blessed by the kind of people that uh, come into our office uh, every year that uh, come for certification. And just I said, oh, I just uh, pinch myself from this dairy farmer kid that's moved in where, you know, I have masters and PhDs and just people from all around the globe who come into training. And I said, wow, you know, how did that happen? Where did that come? It was just working uh, diligently, paying attention to the clues, but we all still need to keep doing the work. I said, I want, and I want to talk about that a little more But I, and, uh, when we talk about CRG, but I, w- I wanted to bring you back to the book for a second. That's cool. Okay, so the, the book that I'm going to ask you about, Why Aren't You More Like Me? Can you tell me what the heck that uh, title means? <laughs> okay. Well, a lot of uh, we we believe that people are born with a personal style. Some people call it personality. We don't in our model. Personality means something else. But for everybody listening, that that's probably how it would uh, fit. And so when we meet certain people, I don't know, JW, if you've met some individuals and you've you've not known them before, you go to a party, it's the first time you've ever met them, and bang, there's just a chemistry, there's a connection with this individual that is just there immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had no history prior to it. And then there's the opposite occurs. You go to a party or event or a gathering. You you have no history of this person, and almost immediately there's sort of this repelling or there's a lack of connection, and there's no chemistry. And so we ask that question, where does that come from? You know, there's wh- where is that coming from? So when we say, why aren't you more like me, we tend to be attracted to people who are like us. And then we tend to judge people negatively who, who are different from us. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that we are all different. We have different values. We have different personal styles. And so what I want to do is, first of all, I need to honor myself because sometimes there's people who are listening to this, JW, where I say, oh, I just wish that I could be like JW. Oh, I wish I could be like him. When, in fact, no, you need to be like you. And so why aren't you more like me? But sometimes people ask the question, why aren't I more like you? Which is not the title of the book, but we, but there are some people that we meet 
where they discount who they are. They discount what they bring. And so I'd just like to suggest to everybody listening is that every person has been created perfectly <laughs> and that you you have the perfect personal style for you and what your purpose and what your calling is and that trying to adjust that to be somebody different, yes, we all have to develop, J.W., is doing a disservice to myself. And so that's really love we that. frame that out. I really love that because one of the things I believe is that uh, competition-wise, I, I, you know, I'm about non-adversarial business where we all work together. And one of the issues about competitiveness is, you know, I, I think competitiveness, competitiveness definitely has a place in sports and other things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we compete against often is everybody out there. And when we gauge ourselves about, against everybody out there, it's very hard for us to, to you know, we come out, uh, we, we, we tend to come out on the bottom of those lists because we're usually looking at the tops in the field. Mm-hmm. Very hard to get your head wrapped around that and, and keep yourself going. On the other hand, if you're competing against yourself and every day growing and moving and, and finding your full potential, whole different story. Is, is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, absolutely, and, and, and think about it from a parenting point of view. I mean, so I have two uh, children, and at the time of this recording, they're 16 and 17. My daughter, in fact, got her driver's license this week, so uh, we've just been busy yeah. driving around with her, and she says, Dad, Dad, I'm driving, I'm driving. So I'm so excited, but she is completely different than my son, Tim. And so even as we think about couples or uh, partners or significant others, uh, a lot of times we'll uh, marry or I don't like to use the word hook up, but connect with uh, somebody who is different than me, the opposite of me. And so you're attracted to them because their oppositeness, I'll create a word, uh, fills a gap. And then you marry them. <laughs> and you say, whoa, what happened there? What I liked about you before is kind of irritating now. And <laughs> the other, so, and then and you say, well, by the way, that's true for you too, Ken. You know, what I was attracted to now is kind of irritating. So this ability to not only accept self, but now the second part of that is to accept people's differences because we're always using a filter, a bias, about how we view and unfortunately judge or uh, evaluate other people's behavior. Right. And so we, we teach credibility within the context of the book is that credibility is in the other person's mind. And it's based on behavior that I do and what I don't do. So in many cases, our credibility is eroded with people around us based on even the sin of omission, meaning what I didn't do, not what I did. So uh, can I be conscious of that? Can I be aware of that? If I'm a leader within any kind of group, a family, organization, business, then I'm going to need diversity within my team. And how is that diversity going to come together? Am I going to hire the right people are going to be able to fulfill the needs of that role from a style perspective, not from an expertise? And so most people don't measure that, JW, where they, they forget that, they omit that. Or one case where I'll tell this short story is that my son is a very uh, outgoing, uh, now extroverted in our model is different, so hopefully we have time to give you the new definition of it. But his teacher was very compliant uh, very wanted a lot of structure, and he was in his grade eight class. And she, he was always being outspoken and, and, and to some degree interrupting or disrupting the class. And the more that she tried to control him, the more that he would act out. And so it got to the point was unpalatable. My son at that time was six foot, and he was really he's ready to kind of beat on this teacher. And I said, that's not good because your father is the chair of the school board, so this is not a good idea. So we coached him, and we helped him to understand 
that even though we want him to honor his style and who he is as a, an individual, it was not, you can't use your style as an excuse for your behavior. And so your behavior, so you need to manage self. So we, we make a statement, you either control your style or your style controls you. Right. So I don't use an excuse for my behavior. I'm not changing who I, he is, but I'm asking him to be intentional with his behaviors. Now, he's grade 8. He's 13 years old, and so he was already understanding that. I also had to coach the teacher to say that more that she wanted to control him, the more that he would act out. And, in fact, she's getting the opposite results than what she wanted in the classroom. So we had to coach her to say that she was a newer teacher. She had sort of this compliance structure that up to the hilt, you know, almost anal retentive kind of uh, style of teaching. And right. you're not going to do that with a 13-year-old teenage boy plus his style. And so my son came home one day, and he was just all excited. He says, Dad, I've learned something new today. And I said, what's that? He says, I've learned how to shut up. <laughs> and so at 13, he was already starting to understand that your presence, you need to kind of manage your presence amongst other people because it's other. The, the reality is, is that all of us have credibility with every single person that we meet, if we want to or, or not. It's the price we pay for showing up. So why wouldn't I want to be intentional to be able to have the highest level of credibility with the most amount of people that I can? Is it, it would be dysfunctional to suggest that we could have a high level of credibility with everybody. That's not possible. But what could it mean if I could improve just the relationships with everybody I meet by just being more aware of my presence in what it's doing in the environment around me and the people that I'm connecting with? Because it's happening right now. But the reality is most people don't know it, J.W. The last well, no, research this is, is that... A, this is great stuff, and I'm glad you brought up the, your, your, your definition there, uh, extroverting and introverting. Um, a lot of kids, I see them, because they are, are even adults who don't know how to deal in these situations and don't know how to assess the situation or control themselves, just come up with the, you know, come up, seem to come up with the phrase, well... This is who I am. You just have to deal with me. Right, which is completely self-centered and self-absorbed. So, um, I mean, college students now, 10% have actually been uh, diagnosed with uh, clinical neurosis. So, they're, I mean, they're all self-absorbed, uh, <laughs> where it's all about me. You think about Facebook and the social media kind of world. And interpersonal skills, regardless if people say it has or hasn't, it has decreased because of the tech world where we're not really paying attention. We're into this, you know, you go to dinner, everybody's texting or all these different pieces, and we're in the world of distraction. So the ability to kind of build relationships, if you can do it, and you can do it well, then you will stand out in a crowd way above anybody else, your success level, but you're also your personal fulfillment. But I just want to digress for a second, if we have time, JW, just to clarify what we mean by introversion and extroversion. Okay. In our model, it, and it's unique and proprietary to us in the development of the work that we've done, is that extroversion in our model has nothing to do with people, and it has nothing to do with energy from the outside. What it is is extroversion in our model is how people are biologically wired to be able around environmental stimulus. And so extroverts see environment as an opportunity to be influenced, to tell it what to do. They need to actually engage the environment and be uh, highly stimulated by it to actually feel alive. So they'll be greater risk takers. 
they uh, will not be compliant, like my son, because when uh, there are suggestions, they want to tell the environment what to do, not the other way around. Right. Now, on the flip side, introversion is that these individuals are more sensitive to environmental stimulus. They tend to respond to what the environment tells them. They are more compliant to what the environment is suggesting to them, and they can feel more overwhelmed by the feedback that they get or the stimulus they get in the environment. Now, this is the, and what this is based on is the research around the reticular activating system, which is the nerve fibers which are in the base of the brain. So introverted personal styles in, in our model, that's interpersonal harmony and cognitive analysis individuals, they have more nerve fibers. So if we have the identical event that happens in front of extroverts and introverts in our model, the extroverts actually take in less information or less stimulus, and the introverts bring in more. But that's why interpersonal harmony individuals have great sensitivity and care and can walk in a room and actually feel the energy as far as what are the emotions going on in the room, where an extrovert would be oblivious to it. <laughs> on the other side, you have these cognitive analysis individuals who have great attention to detail. And so they have the ability to see what's not there because they have a bigger radar dish, but they're taking in more data, so that's why their system can feel overwhelmed and they mm -hmm. defer to what the environment is telling them. And then people in task is a separate model or a separate continuum in our model for people, and we separate those. And so the extrovert, on the other hand, you know, they can go in, you know, be a bull in the china shop, uh, really not be aware that they offended some individuals or moving on. And it's not that they meant to. It's just that this has to be sort of a muscle that we develop, JW, to be socially awake and aware that our behavior is having impact in the environment and am I increasing my credibility? Is it staying the same or is it lowering based on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing? And that consciousness can be very freeing and very powerful to work with other individuals, not from a manipulation point of view, but certainly from an engagement and success point of view. There's a couple of things here. One of them is, uh, and you bring it up, you brought it up a few times, and that is uh, awareness. And in the book, uh, in your book, self-awareness, uh, you you call foundational to change. Um, why is that, and how do we come, become aware? Well, self-awareness is, uh, and, and I, you know, our great uh, friend, uh, Excuses Be Gone, uh, author, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, Wayne Dwyer, when we talk about awareness, in awareness all things are possible. Right. So if I'm unaware of what's going on or who I am, and my personal style or its implications, then I really can't do anything about it because I'm oblivious, unaware of what's going on. But in awareness, it allows me then the opportunity to make a choice or a decision to do something about it. So what we do with our assessments is that we create awareness at all kinds of different levels because we have an entire holistic assessment system. You know, if it's your values, if it's self-worth, if it's personal style, if it's wellness, if it's leadership skills, whatever, or entrepreneurship, whatever it is, wow. is that we will then help learning styles. We help to create this awareness so now I can start moving into intentionality. Now, this is not our research, but uh, research from TalentSmart said that 70% of the population is unaware of what their personal style is. However, the flip side of, what, of that was is that if you're unaware of your personal style, is that only 2% of the population who is unaware of their personal style will realize their full potential. So how important is it, JW? 
<laughs> pretty darn important, it sounds like. It sounds like it's critical. But right. what's really amazing is that how few people will go out and, let's say, purchase my book, Why Aren't You More Like Me?, or go do the work. You know, in my book, I actually include an online assessment for you, free of charge, instead of charging $45 for it. It's included it's in the book. And they just go to whyaren'tyoumorelikeme.com. But they can complete it, get a sense of that, and there's, so there's feedback in there. It's okay, here are the propensities of that style. What are the strengths? What are some of the challenges? How would you react to stress in that style pattern? What are some things in terms of teams? Well, in terms of other relationships, about leadership, and then an entire sort of paragraph or narrative about what are some things I could do to increase my effectiveness and start developing things that we call versatility or flexibility so that I can be uh, just more aware it's okay, right now JW needs me to do this to be able to build relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And so do I, have I developed myself enough to intentionally shift, not change who I am, but shift my behaviors to be more appropriate, more effective, get better results in the context of our relationship. And it's in that awareness, JW, that people then become um, very effective. And this is true in parenting. I mean, if I'm going to parent the same style with my son as my daughter, I'd just be absolute failure. And there's so many people. I mean, that's the one job that everybody can get without applying for it, right? Right. And, and if you, I know some of you have seen this. You go into your local local grocery store, and you'll watch how a three- or four-year-old has completely taken out an adult. And then that adult is saying stuff to that child, uh, you know what, I'm just going to leave you here. You're never going to leave them there. But that is that is an adult who is undeveloped, who doesn't have the parenting skills to be able to deal with the three- or four-year-old, and we see that every day. So what does that do to the child later on where they really haven't been given the structure of those processes? Because they they need us to kind of lead them because three- and four-year-olds don't have the emotional capacity to be able to work. Now now we get into another seminar around parenting skills, but that it, it applies to everything. And well, even like This is something you should start learning in elementary school as a, as a 101 course. Oh, absolutely. I, I took actually my kids' um, a grade 8 class through what we have a, an assessment. It's called a quick style indicator, which is the simpler version of our style tool. And I took them through just a two-hour workshop as a gift to them. And at the end of it, and I did it sort of as a year-end kind of gift to the class. And at the end of it, all the little groups and cliques were based on their style patterns. And they were just kind of clustered together. And a lot of the conflict that they had in their class was actually style-driven. And they said, we wish we had this in the beginning of the year, not the end of the year, because a lot of the things that were going on, the conflicts, the differences, the uh, hurt feelings, we're based on style, which goes right back to the title of the book, Why Aren't You More Like Me? That's, that, you know, I, like I said, it should be taught uh, sooner than later. And every book that I've bought that has changed my life or ch- changed something in my head, I, you know, have read it when I was 40 years old and wished I hit it when oh, I was Oh, exactly. You know, if, what would it mean if we would have got it when we're – if I would have understood this stuff when I was 17 and 18 instead of 30? Let me ask you again, because one of the things we talked about is assessing others. Is this, is this something you teach, or is this something that is also important to getting out there and being successful with others? I mean, being self-aware about yourself, obviously you've proved that to be critical. But what about being assessing others and, and, and who you're talking to? Well, uh, certainly, especially from a style point of view, we have a model where we teach people, and it's uh, Chapter 6 in the book, where we show you a model about how you can uh, pay attention to the clues other people are leaving you, and then what to do about it. In other words, their behaviors are telling you something. So 
in in a way we are assessing that person and we're but we're not assessing them in a judgmental point of view we're assessing them in terms of the clues that you're leaving to say that what do I need to do to be able to build a relationship with you we also do have in our formal uh, assessment set where we have 360s where people can come in and they can actually do a, a leadership 360 where I actually give you my feedback on your skill sets. Well, that's a little different. That's a little higher level. Uh, I can, we can also, we've had, because we have a personal style indicator, you can also take that and complete it. Let's say, JW, you complete it on your wife. And so you fill out the form. And because it's a non-judgmental form, is that you say, this is how I experience you behaviorally. Uh, we have an instructional style assessment. So sometimes we'll have, now very few professors are open to this. But we can have students complete the instructional style indicator on their professor. And they complete it, and it tells them, said, this is how we experience you as a professor, as a teacher, as an instructor towards us. And you, we, I, uh, we're finishing the program, why don't you teach the way that I learn, because that's a passion of mine. And just helping people to understand that, you know, there's different learning styles. Now, there's some people that actually don't believe that there is. And I say, you know what? My wife is an academic coach in a university. They use the learning style tool that we have as part of the coaching and the study skills for all the university students. And she's able to, with her department, and it's slightly less than but very close to one GPA point improvement in each of those students over two terms. So if you, if I can improve now, there's lots of components. There's coaching. There's study skills. But the learning style is one of the anchor pieces as part of that process. So nobody can tell me that learning style is not relevant to individuals, right. too. So, I mean, all of that comes into play. Let's talk about CRG. You're the CEO of CRG, and you work with uh, some of your clients include Boeing, Chrysler, Honda, London Drugs, AT&T, GT, Manual Life. Uh, I mean, we can go on and on here. What do they hire you for? What do you do for them? And how can people on this call get more information from you? Well, thank you, JW. Uh, well, Consulting Resource Group, or CRG is what we like to call it, it's Consulting Resource Group International Inc., uh, and our website is crgleader.com. Uh, we were founded in 1979 by Dr. Terry Anderson, and what he wanted to do is create a series of tools and assessments that were developed for the learner. And so that's really what we've been sharing with people in the call, these are not uh, tests that you do to some uh, individuals. It's assessments I do with you or assessments you do with yourself, I mean, around self-discovery or development managers. Mm-hmm. And we do uh, several different things, but we really are a resource center for other professional, personal professional developers. So the VP of training, the VP of sales, the VP of HR, or uh, business owners, or you're talking about network marketing leaders and all their groups, they will uh, access these tools and resources for some kind of solution that they're seeking within the context of developing that group. So universities will use it in the context of some kind of learning or leadership. And then we also provide a certification where if somebody wants to learn intensely about the different tools, you don't have to come to certification to use our tools and resources. Go to the site and in three minutes from this call, go on and be taking a tool online and get the immediate feedback right there. But other people want to come and learn in depth about the creation of these, you know, millions of words of content, some nine different different authors over that uh, 33-year period of time. And so there's a significant amount of effort that's gone into it. So we do that. Or 
if they want us to come in and do speaking and training, then we will do that as well. Uh, so we can leverage that. And we're now, as I said earlier, we're in 30 countries and 11 languages. So, you know, if it's Dutch or French or Spanish or Japanese or Chinese, I mean, all these different languages are out there that we're operating in. It's just, it's just fun to be able, or Arabic, in fact. So if there's fun to be able to just go global and just be able to connect with anybody around the world in what we're doing. Well, that's, that's incredible. And, uh, how, and you've been building this up over 25 years. You've had various partners. I know that uh, a lot of things you teach are not things you expressly develop, but you take it from a lot of different scientists, uh, a lot of different science, excuse me, a lot of different uh, um, development techniques, and then you've uh, co-developed some techniques and developed some. And, this, and you put this all together into several programs. Is that, am I kind of hitting it on the head? Yeah. Well, Dr. Anderson created the first model, which was our own proprietary system. And, you know, there's lots of, quote, unquote, personality tests. Ours is different than all the other ones out there because we created our own model, which was really the best of the best. And most of the other ones are single theories or all is multi-theoried. And then we went into different directions uh, so that, yeah, so that we – all the information that we have within our company is proprietary to us. So you won't find these tools or assessments uh, unless they're one of our associates or one of our clients being offered right. by other people because they are here. And, yes, research the leadership skills and all, all the different information there and brought our own model together or the entrepreneurial assessment that help people understand their own business or the health and wellness. And uh, so – Again, all those different connections, and we just continue to do an iterative, uh, continuous improvement on the tools. And uh, 10 years ago, what happened is that I connected with CRG in 1990, and Dr. Anderson was the founder of it, and then he was best man at my wedding, so we're buddies. Uh, but more recently, 10 years ago, I bought the company from Terry. So I'm the sole owner and copyright holder of all the content. So we're basically, you know, visioning and just pushing this out there as far as be able to equip people, and our passion is really, again, to help others to live on purpose, and then our tools and resources contribute to that goal in the context of being a better leader of a Fortune 500 company or a better mom or dad within your own family unit, whatever it is, and everything in between. So that's part of our opportunity, but it's also part of our dilemma is that if you're walking and breathing at 15 years of age, you can use what we have. Wonderful, and I want people to be able to get in touch with your organization and, and uh, check out your tools and uh, possibly get the help that they need. And, uh, I mean, this is this is incredibly great stuff, Ken. Um, actually, well, after you. speaking to you, I've learned so much more off this call than I, than I knew before, and it's just fascinating. Um, let me ask you to give out your websites and contact information one more time for everybody so that I don't – we don't – you have to go all through this call to go find that stuff. Okay. Well, the, the book site is whyaren'tyoumorelikeme.com, and then you can access the book and the information. There's some chapters you can read there before you decide if that's something you want to get or not. And then our main primary site is a company where all our assessments are listed, and if you're a professional developer of some sort or in, an individual and if you want to take the assessments, it's called crgleader.com. So crgleader.com or... Uh, why aren't you more like me.com. And then if you do want to call us directly or email us, you can do info at crgleader.com, uh, or you can call us at, uh, 866, which is a toll-free number in North America, 866-852-4347. Uh, 
And then if people are international, that number doesn't work from Europe. Uh, the international number is 604-852-0566. Great. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, and I apologize, I didn't touch on your other book. You have another book out. Uh, do you want to uh, mention that real quick? Well, the other book is My Source Journal Experience. And really what it is, it's a roadmap of questions. And it just helps people to get clear of their purpose in life. So it's really a series of activities that people go through. So it's, it's, it references the assessments, which contribute to getting clear about what your life purpose is. But really it's a series of questions that take you through creating really an autobiography of all the interests and uh, compelling things in your life which are exciting for you, and then distilling that down to really create a framework of your ideal sort of life and uh, ideal career. And so that's what that is. And I didn't create that. Mike McManus did. He passed away several years ago of cancer, and I just continued his work. I went through it personally in the late 80s, early 90s, and so I just found it so valuable that I continued his work, and it just coattailed on the work that we were doing as well. Well, that's fantastic. This is J.W. Nigerian. I'm speaking to Ken uh, Kreese, and um, we're talking about uh, his book, Why Aren't You More Like Me? And uh, CRG, his uh, company, who uh, uh, has all kinds of great tools and everything for you to use. You should check that out. Um, Ken, I want to give you the um, ability to have the last word here and close us out as we're coming close to the hour. Uh, would you like to take that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I just encourage uh, JW that, you know, regardless if it's us or it's others, is that that all of us take the time to honor ourselves to do the work, to find out what our purpose and passion is, to pay attention to all those nuances, to get the tools and resources around you that help bring clarity. Because the greatest gift that you can give, not to you, only to yourself, to others, it's to be living in purpose and to be fully engaged. And the greatest disservice is to be stuck in a rut and not embracing all that you were created to be. So I just encourage you to step out of that. And if you need to take small steps first, please do so. And just encourage you to kind of go out and find the information and do it because the answers you seek are there for you. You just have to look. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken. It's been quite a nice hour, a lot of great information. I think you've probably helped a lot of people just on the call itself. So I know your tools and everything else are going to be just exceptional. Everybody, I wish you a wonderful day and an even better tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2012, and all rights are reserved.